In today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to be talking about recognizing the enemy in a crowd of aliens. That's right. We're talking about Enterprise Episode 7 of Season 3, The Shipment. This episode aired originally on October 29th, 2003. Welcome, everybody, to Trek in Time, where we're watching every episode of Star Trek in chronological order. And we're also talking about the context of the world when the episodes originally aired. So we're looking at things right now from 2003 because we're watching season three of Enterprise. And who are we? I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt. Matt is the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I'm hoping to be able to get outside and enjoy some sunshine and fresh air before the weekend ends. Yeah, me too. To our listeners and our viewers, you check these out when they drop on Friday, but we record them on Sundays. Ha <laughs> 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 And travel. As usual, we like to start off by sharing some comments from our previous episodes. So Matt, do you have some comments from previous episodes for us? I sure do. From the episode Impulse, I have one from Pelgo69. This should have been episode two of the season. Imagine the tension it would have added to the other episodes, especially the ones dealing with Trillium. And just a reminder, this is the crazy Vulcans who've been contaminated by Trillium D. Yeah. It was also funny to consider how an insane, violent Vulcan crew is still a bunch of quiet introverts where a human ship would be hollering and screeching. Yeah. <laughs> I also do. I, I agree. The, the redirection of the episode order would also make sense it within helps. the context of what they knew going in, which was if you go into the expanse, this is what we know happens. The Vulcans share a recording from that ship, which is the ship that went in to look for the missing ship came back and everybody was out of their mind. Yep. So it would make sense that the Vulcan ship that they were looking for might not have made it too deep into the expanse. So that I think would have been an interesting location for them to like earlier on as, as ghost is pointing out. I think that does make a lot of sense. I like that. And they could have discovered what made them crazy. There's this strange new thing that we don't know what this is. And it looks like it's, it's made them go nuts. Yeah. And then later they discover Trillium. They're like, Oh, this is the stuff that yeah. made the Vulcans nuts. So it's like they could have just reversed things and made it work. Yeah. Uh, the other comment I wanted, to, uh, two other comments, uh, one from Karen Collette. One thing I was confused by was how easily Archer was able to physically restrain to Paul. Mm -hmm. Vulcans are generally portrayed as stronger than humans. Memory Alpha says three times. Uh, saying, it, saying it's the effects of the Trillium seems weak given how the other Vulcans seem to be physically strong, mm -hmm. taking multiple stun shots to incapacitate them. I agree with this completely. It was clearly artistic license that were taking there. Yeah. It didn't make logical sense how it's like, how would it make them like these zombies you can't take down and her make her this little weakling? It, it didn't make any sense. Um, the last comment was from eBoss. Congratulations on the publication, Sean. Adventure stories always sound like fun in my ears. Good episode, by the way. Have a good one, guys. Just wanted to bring this up as Sean made a big announcement about he has a new book coming out in a year. Mm -hmm. It's a year from now. Yeah, it'll be a year from um, now. It's called The Sinister yeah. Secrets of Singe, and I will be uh, sharing more information as we get closer to pub date, including things like cover and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's a family-friendly adventure story, and I hope people will check it out when it comes out. But we don't have time for that right now. That 
noise. Yep. It's a read alert. That can only mean one thing, Matt. It's time for you to read the Wikipedia description for this episode. Okay. Get ready for some redundancy, I'm assuming. The shipment is the 59th episode of the American science fiction television series Star Trek Enterprise, the seventh episode of season three. It first aired on October 29th, 2003 on the UPN network in the United States. The episode was written by Chris Black and Brent V. Friedman. It was directed by David Straton. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Straton? His sixth episode of the series at this point. Set in the 22nd century, the series follows the adventures of the first Starfleet Starship Enterprise registration NX-01. In this episode, the crew follow a trail of information to a mining complex, which is producing a compound used in the construction of a Zindi weapon. While Chief Engineer Charles Tripp Tucker, Connor Trenier, makes a discovery about the Zindi sidearms. Okay. There you have it. (laughs) (laughs) There's your summary. As Matt mentioned, this is episode seven of season three, and it includes a number of guest actors, which include John Cothran Jr. as Gralic Durr, Randy Oglesby as Degra, Stephen Culp as Major Hayes, John Eddins as Zindi Reptilian, and then my favorite character names in all of Star Trek, Jack Alstead (laughs) as Sloth number two, and Sam Witwer. (laughs) as sloth number three. <laughs> I would like to point out that John Cothran Jr. is a character actor. You've seen him in a number of different shows. He's been in some sci-fi and I think he does a really great job in this episode, which to me feels a bit like pretty straightforward Trek of mm-hmm understanding that sometimes the one you think might be your enemy is not truly your enemy mixed with, I just kept getting whiffs of planet of the apes. Yes. It was like, just, I had that in my notes, the makeup and the way (laughs) that the, the portrayal of the characters. Yeah. Portraying the Zindi as made up of five different species that all evolved along different lines until there were multiple sentient species on their planet and that they refer to each other in ways that reflect what we as human viewers anticipate from those given animals. So Mm -hmm. there is the, the reptilians seem aggressive and cold blooded. And there's reference in this one to a sixth species that is largely gone now, which is the avian, which would be bird creatures and the sloth creatures in are slow. They're a little slow and methodical, (laughs) but the reptilian reveals that he's not quite on board with the pace at which they work. So it's almost like jokes within jokes that are not delivered as jokes. It's just part of the flavor of this group of, of aliens that are all Zindi, but they're not all one type. And I found myself, especially with the main scientist, which is Gralic. I just kept going back to, I'm getting Dr. Zayas vibes really, really strongly here. This, this guy is just, he's, he is a scientist. He's taking a methodical approach and he's taking an approach, which as he realizes his role in the bigger picture, he doesn't like what he sees. 
and mm-hmm. and it was a real um if you'll forgive the the term a humanizing of the zindi in this one where it's yep. it's an opportunity for the enterprise crew we're about a quarter of the way through the season we're beginning to see archer's understanding of their mission is evolving he's beginning to mm-hmm. question okay what exactly are we going to do about zindi when we meet zindi who say what do you mean we're trying to kill humans i'm not doing that and there is clearly the nefarious plot at work we see the prime movers of the desire to construct the weapon they are gathering materials from this mining colony but the mining colony itself is made up of people who don't have any idea that their material that they're mining is being used to build a bomb overall matt what did you think about this episode it was i liked it Mm -hmm. i definitely liked it better than the last episode we talked about it it was a fun adventure tale and it 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 gave me very strong planet of the apes vibes part it was partly from the makeup and the way that the actors were doing that kind of slothful walk it was like it came across as very planet of the apes to me sometimes not in a good way but in general i did like how it was as you pointed out how it was humanizing the zindi Mm -hmm. so it's like there was i I liked it at the end of the day i did like this episode so what was the world like when this episode landed well matt you were no longer shaking your tail feather that's the good news the bad news is you are now dancing to here without you by three doors down end of the movie theater Scary Movie 3 made $48 million. I'm going to let that sink in. That's right. Scary Movie 3 opened with $48 million. Scary Movie 3 broke Red Dragon's record for the highest weekend debut in October, as well as for any fall release, and broke Laura Croft Tomb Raider's record for highest weekend debut for a film featuring a female protagonist. And of course, the scary movie franchise is part of the parody film franchise that parodies humor, sci-fi, and mystery genres. It's the sequel, I don't need to say this, to Scary Movie 2, which it was itself the sequel to Scary Movie 1, and it had the tagline, trilogies come in threes. The film stars Anna Faris and Regina Hall reprising their roles from the previous films, and it was the first film not to feature the Wayans brothers, Marlon and Sean. This movie is currently streaming on HBO if anybody wanted to check it out. And on television, what was Enterprise up against? Well, it's becoming a common refrain. It struggled against the competition, which included My Wife and Kids and It's All Relative on ABC, 60 Minutes 2 on CBS, Fox's That 70s Show, and A Minute with Stan Hopper, Hooper, A Minute with Stan Hooper, I tripped over the name of that show because up until this moment, I did not know this show existed. <laughs> there was also Ed on NBC and on WB, Smallville was getting 6.7 million. And behind that, this episode of Star Trek Enterprise at 3.7. And then the news, what was going on at this time, October 29th, 2003, well, the Bush administration, which had boldly declared mission accomplished in triumphing in the Iraq war months earlier was now stepping back from the literal mission accomplished banner 
that so famously was behind Bush when he visited a Navy vessel. The triumphal mission accomplished banner was the pride of the White House advance team, the image makers who set the stage for the president's close-ups. On May 1, on a golden Pacific evening aboard the carrier Abraham Lincoln, they made sure the banner was perfectly captured in the camera shots of President Bush's speech declaring major combat in Iraq at an end. But on Tuesday, in the Rose Garden, Mr. Mr. Bush publicly disavowed the banner that had come to symbolize what his critics said was a premature declaration that the United States had prevailed. The mission accomplished sign, of course, was put up by members of the USS Abraham Lincoln, saying that their mission was accomplished, Mr. Bush told reporters. I know it was attributed somehow to some ingenious advance man from my staff. They weren't that ingenious, by the way. And the article would go on to explain that the Bush team was never responsible, that the suggestion came from the USS Abraham Lincoln's crew, and that they made the banner happen, but that the crew put it up. And at the time, General Wesley Clark, who was beginning to run for president and would try to run for the Democratic nomination in 2004, was quoted in the article as saying it was disingenuous for the Bush administration to be laying the banner on the sailors on the ship instead of taking responsibility for it. I thought that that news story captured an ongoing evolution in U.S. understanding and world understanding of the Iraq mission, what was going on in Iraq, and who the enemy is, and was kind of born out in this episode as we see the evolution of Archer's approach to the Zindi. I think that the elements of the plot, we can take two approaches, and maybe you'll agree or maybe you'll disagree, Matt. There is the overall story of Archer's experience and meeting this mining colony head who's responsible for mining chemosite, which is used for development of the Zindi weapon. Archer begins to question, like, we've been putting all the Zindi in one basket, but clearly we can't treat them all the same. And what do we do with a mining colony? when they now know we're here and we want to stop their production, but do we blow up a site of people who are arguably innocent of a crime? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's that. And then there's the nuts and bolts of what the people do within the show. Yeah. And I don't know if you're like me, my approach to this episode regarding the first angle that I described I really liked this episode. It felt, I see where you're going with it this. It felt a uh, classic Trek. We've got a mission. We're coming in, we're showing up, we're finding out something that we didn't understand before. We're leaving with maybe even a friendship or an understanding that didn't exist before. And we don't carry ourselves at the end of the episode, the way we carried ourselves at the beginning. There's some of the nuts and bolts of what happens within the episode though, that left me really kind of scratching my head as to why was that the choice? They do some things with their own technology. They use the transporters finally for some purposes within this one. They usually avoid the transporters. They use the transporters, but they don't use them consistently in a way that would have made a lot of sense. And 
I found myself really confused by the very end of the episode, which revolved around Captain Archer running across a tarmac without any cover so that he could physically exchange a jar of chemocyte that's been altered so they can track it with a jar of chemocyte that's unaltered. Okay. (laughs) Okay, So let me, okay. I agree with you. We should separate this into two conversations. We could, we could attack the, the, crappy stuff first so we could attack the what they do (laughs) the decision making in this episode makes no sense but at the same time that's kind of trek it's like why would the captain be going on this mission the captain would have never gone on this mission it's like the captain does so many stuff just so many missions in this entire series that don't make sense you would not send your bridge crew on so many missions you wouldn't it's like that was ridiculousness from the original series because yeah. it was the sixties and that's what they were doing. Sure. doesn't mean you have to continue that through every f- series. And what, that's one of the things I loved about next generation. Picard did not go on most of the missions because he was the captain and he stayed on the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> that's what a captain does. He sends his, the people that report to him to do the work. So he would have said nothing but Marines. So I, I, I even had a problem with Reed being there. It's like, I thought this would have been the perfect episode where he descends the Marines and maybe Reed's commanding a couple of Marines and he's doing, he's basically over the comms telling them what to do mm-hmm. and having this internal debate. But of course it's Star Trek. You can't do that. You have to have Bacula down on the planet having these interactions for himself, whatever it, it it's like, I could see them having the Marines go down there do the, all this stuff. They, ca- they capture this scientist and then he beams down and does a one-on-one like interrogation of the man they could have done that way Mm -hmm. but the fact that he was the linchpin of all of it especially for that end sequence where he's running across the tarmac i'm like you have a trained marine (laughs) who's this is what he does (laughs) you were not trained as a marine what are you doing it's like you'd send the guy who's a military man to pull off this espionage kind of level stuff yeah it was it was bananas. And then the second thing I had problem was, was why did they go in the forest? Why did you grab this guy and go running off into the forest? It's like that entire sequence in the forest, the whole decision-making behind going that way was like in a horror movie when they're like, you know, what's that sound from the basement? Let's go into this creepy basement. It's yeah. like, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. A rational person would not make the decision you're making right now. And so there were a couple of points in, the, in this episode that made me just go, okay, let it wash over yeah. you. Just let that bad decision making go, wash over you. That's not the point of the episode. Yeah, just just go with it. Yeah, I so ended like, up. I I, I, I yeah. I agree with I Sorry. agree with you. I agree with you a lot in your your summation of the the context of getting into the forest. Here's how much of a leap that was. I don't know what happened to me that no. I might have looked down for a moment, but they were suddenly in the forest, and I had no yes. idea why. Yes. It was yes. as if I had no idea a scene was missing. I had to back up. Yeah, as if a scene I, was missing. I backed missing. up and rewatched it. Yeah. yeah. I was like, no, I didn't miss anything. Yeah. They're just running into the they forest They just now. decided they're going to run into on? the forest with this guy. And yeah. it becomes then they're being hunted. And, and as you said, I think overall, I think what's interesting about this episode is as a whole, I think it is strong enough that in the yeah. moment I was willing to forgive as I was just like, Oh, well, yes. here's a case where the transporters would have fixed thing. The, the captain, as you mentioned, you've got a Marine. The Marine should be the guy who takes that canister to run aboard the ship to plant it in the, the ship. Here's my problem. They've already demonstrated that they've used the transporter once 
to beam the chemocyte from the planet up to the ship. Why couldn't they beam the chemocyte from the Enterprise back onto the enemy ship? They have zero reason for not being able to do that. Somehow they can beam that down to the captain who can then run aboard the ship. But you're telling me that they don't have the ability to replace a canister. You could have very easily, but Sean is like, it's not in the text of the script. So this is just me like saying, you could have easily explained it away by saying there's shielding on the ship. They can't beam in there. So somebody has to physically go aboard the ship. It's like they could have very easily made the explanation why why somebody has to physically do it. They could have very easily done that, but they didn't. It wasn't in the text of the script. So it leaves you going, why aren't they using the teleporter? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why couldn't they just teleport them close to the ship? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Let me teleport you behind this pole by the ship and then you can just run in there really quick and do it. Right. I also wondered, there was a reason why they couldn't have given it to Gralic and then Gralic go in and exchange it. Yep. Little things like that. But in the moment, like I said, ultimately I understood the point of this is them coming to terms with, we don't know as much about these people as we thought. And I thought for me, one of the nicest scenes was Gralic describing the sixth and now gone member of the Zindi family. Yes. The avians and him saying wistfully, my grandfather told me that there was a place where the avians filled the skies. And as he is describing this, both he and Scott Bakula, the acting that is going on there, both of them are conveying such a sense of wonder at the idea of an intelligent flying species that would fill the skies like a, a, effectively your society, your civilization is flying above you and a mourning. I got a sense of mourning in both of them yep. of there's this thing yep. that did exist and then something happened. And the fact that they reveal finally what happened to the Zindi homeworld is part of the tragedy of that, that Grolic describes a relationship between the five remaining species as one that mm-hmm. is, I mean, fragile at best. It's the responsibility for the destruction of the planet is described as being the result of the insectoids and the reptilians intentionally planting charges on the weakest tectonic points of the planet and not understanding what the ramifications of that might be. They blew up their own planet. And so here we have a, the introduction of the Zindi, they're flying into the expanse, an unknown place. They meet the Zindi and they begin to be told stories of, yeah, we were all these different cultures on one world and we couldn't figure out how to get along. And we ended up destroying our own planet as a result. And boy, can you see 2003 in the storytelling. This is yeah. where Matt and I have been heading during all the previous episodes where we were saying season three, a lot of stuff starts to come together and it starts to come together in a way that really speaks of the era that the show was built in. For me, this is an episode that absolutely reeks of it was made years after September 11th. 
It was made post the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was really looking at what was happening in the current context and saying, is this all manageable? Are we doing things that make sense? And it has your main protagonist of the show, Archer, standing, looking at the people that he's meeting and beginning to say, I can't paint with a broad brush. I can't destroy a mining facility when these people are not only not even aware of the weapon that was being built. These are people who have no other place to go. This is their only livelihood. This is their, this is their only society at this point. So beginning to measure everything within its own relative scenario, as opposed to, I have an enemy I have to go destroy. That evolution, I think, was part of the public debate that was going on in 2003 around Iraq, around Afghanistan, around 9-11. It would head full on into, in, in the US, it would head full on into the presidential elections the following year. But this episode for me really puts all that really on stark display. This, this is part of what, this is part of what I love about Star Trek. To me, what makes the best Star Trek is when they're grappling with weighty ethical issues, uh, questions about morality, what the right thing to do, what the wrong thing to do is, how you struggle with it. Th those are the things that work the best in Star Trek. Like one of my favorite episodes of Next Generation, I've brought this up before, is the, there are four lights. It's like, I love that episode. It's like perfection to me. It's like just two guys acting their hearts out in a room and it is gripping television and it's just incredible. Yeah. So it's like there are, th this doesn't achieve that level, but this is part of the reason why those bad decision-making elements of the story don't matter to me mm -hmm. because the high level point of the episode does hold together and it, it does have a message and it does have a clear through line. And yeah, they took some bad shortcuts in trying to move the plot along, but the, the theme holds together. Yeah. And f one of the big aspects of those is the two guys in a room acting their hearts out. The scenes between the captain and the scientist in the, his house mm -hmm. and in the cat in the cave are the best scenes in the show, yeah. in my opinion, in this, in this episode. It's great dialogue and it, you can, over the course of the episode, I love the evolution of the captain's point on this. In the beginning of the episode, he is going in there to kick ass, yeah. you know, you know, we finally got, we finally got, a gum. he's like, we finally yeah. have some hard information. Correct. And there's uh, one of the things I really, really liked about the setup of that was Reed congratulates Archer. Yes. They are on the, he feels like we came yes. in here with nothing and you have found us a way Mission accomplished. to getting here. Put Mission the banner accomplished. Up. It is, it is that <laughs> moment. And it is very much a, but Reed also, is expecting to go in and like, we're going to kick some butt right now. We're going to start taking names. Both of his guys, both of his guys, the Marine and Reed at different times during the episode are like, okay, let's blow this shit up. Yeah. And then he kept like, uh, hold on that. And then later he's like, I'm not going to do that. And they're saying, we think this is a mistake. And they're pushing him on this yeah. because they came out here to kick ass and take right. names. And here's the captain starting to doubt the point of the mission, yeah. realizing this is more nuanced than he realized it was. And so he's grappling with this ethical dilemma and he makes the choice, which of course is Star Trek fans were like, it's the right choice. Yeah. It's like, he's, he's looking big picture that this is more complicated than I thought we can't 
you know, kill these people that are innocent. That's going to make us the enemy that they fear of us. And it's, yeah. I thought that was a beautiful evolution of him over the episode. I also thought it was a beautiful evolution of the scientist over the episode of being like, I loved how sarcastic he was Yeah, of like the entire time of just like, Oh, oh was, I thought you forgot about me when he comes back into the yeah. room and there's, it was, but it was great to see his empathy towards the humans grow. Yeah. But there was one thing I thought in that storyline I thought could have been strengthened. And it was why the scientist had that turning point of, uh, why he was going to help basically betray his own species to help the humans. Yeah. I don't think it was strong enough. No. Um, and in the story, when he was talking about the avians, I thought they could have worked it in there because the, the, the element of melancholy and sadness and regret of his species being part of the destruction of its own world was there, yeah. but it was, it needed to be a little more pointed and it could have been something along the lines of, cause he talked about his grandfather lived on the planet yeah, and his grandfather told him these stories and he could have said something as simple as like, my grandfather always told me about the folly of how badly we handled the situation. Yeah. And it was, so he could have, he could have basically, basically been po pointing that he was raised by his grandfather and his father to recognize that what they did was exactly what the humans were trying to fight back against. Right. Like they could have created that connection between his grandfather and what uh, the captain meant to him in that exact moment. What, and that yeah. would have explained why he flipped. And what I would have, uh, to build on what you just said, his description of my grandfather told me that there was a, a time when the sky was <laughs> filled with the avians yeah. and but then the reptilians and the exectoids planted those bombs and changed everything. If Archer in that moment then responded with a, and now they're trying to do the same to my planet. Yep. And then you have the scientist, the flip say, my grandfather always told me that it was from folly. And then you have a very hard ground for that change to take place. And I agree with you. It felt a little as abrupt as, Hey, let's go to the woods. And, yeah. and there needed to be a little bit of a smoothing of some of those edges, but overall, um, you know, even, I mean, even with Archer saying like, I'm going to take this canister, I'm going to run aboard their ship. There's the yeah. very odd depiction of, of Grelick having to like, he's practically breaking into song and dance to distract, <laughs> look at me to distract Degra <laughs> and the reptilian is like, and he's like, hello, my honey, hello, my darling. And he's just like, look at me, look at me. Uh, have you, have you, have you ever seen this trick? I'll pull my thumb off. And, and meanwhile <laughs> we get a CGI archer running across the tarmac yes. in a very strange animated sequence that just felt like, okay, that's not working, but I know what you're going for here. They're working yeah. as a team. They've come to support each other and they're both looking for the same goal, which is let's figure out a non-aggressive, non-destructive way to put a stop to these nefarious plans. And we end, it, it, to me, it was again, though, a bit of a sad trombone because the episode ends with, oh, the ship went to a special portal and went through it and we lost track of that but the, the scientist yeah. does say no but the scientist tells them something they didn't know yeah it only has a range of a couple light, light years right. so they're not that far away right you, you can still find them. right so that's the first so it was a little tiny ray of sunshine yeah. but it was like it still was a santa trombone of like wait what yeah. all of that yeah i had to watch a cgi <laughs> archer run across a tarmac so that you could tell me that the mayonnaise he put on their ship didn't even amount to squat i'm sorry what <laughs> but overall 
I thought it was a good episode. I liked I liked, I liked the the yeah. acting. I liked the 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 setup of here you have the sloth people and they're just trying to mine that ore. They're just like we've got this stuff. They're we, just walking around yeah, doing their job. They're just doing their job. <laughs> like <laughs> we got to sell this stuff and and it's what we do. And I and I liked the experience of the connection between Grelick and and Archer. Did you did you notice <laughs> It was the first it was the first shot when they look out into the fact they're like in that office and they're looking through the window into the factory and you see all the stuff going on. My eyes immediately focused on the people that were walking around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed there was one of the characters that was like walking. I don't know if it was animated or if it was actual film people that they were superimposing in, mm-hmm. but he was walking like he had a load in his pants. Oh no. <laughs> he was his arms were kind of bowed and his legs were kind of bowed. And he was just kind of like it was like, okay, you're trying to make him walk like a sloth or something right. like kind of slow and kind of walking gait, but none of the other ones were. Right. And so it made it look like he's got a load in his pants. <laughs> He's just had an accident in yeah. space. So everybody who's listening, what do you think about this episode? Do you agree that it was a little bit of a mixed bag, but overall it felt like Trek or do you disagree with us? And you love seeing Archer run across the tarmac. You love the action sequences of the captain being in danger and on the planet. Let us know. You can reach out through the contact information in the podcast description, or you can on YouTube scroll beneath this video and leave your comments there. And next time we're going to be talking about twilight, Matt, any predictions? What do you think twilight's about? It's going to be an episode about the sun setting. Mm. I think it's going to be about vampires and sparkly diamonds, diamonds, (laughs) sparkly vampires in space. Before we go, Matt, is there anything you'd like to remind our listeners about that you have coming up? Uh, Just to keep watching Undecided with Matt Farrell, I've got a lot of topics coming up that are going to be probably right in the wheelhouse of people who like Star Trek and science fiction. There's some really cool new technologies coming from renewable energy, like CO2 batteries and storing solar power in a liquid Mm -hmm. for up to 18 years. There's Mm -hmm. some really cool stuff that I'm going to be covering in the next coming weeks. Sunlight in liquid form. They call that Sunny D. As for me, you can check out my oh. website. It's SeanFarrell.com, or you can just go to your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books. You should be able to find my books there. And as I mentioned earlier, keep an eye out for news about my new book, Sinister Secrets of Singe, which will be coming out next year. If you'd like to support the show, please do consider leaving a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was you found this episode. Go back there and say, I like these guys. And you can quote me in putting that review. I like these guys. And if you'd like to more directly support us, you can go to trekintime.show. You can click on the become a supporter button. And when you do that, you're allowed to throw coins at our heads. We love each and every wealth that we get. And when you do that, you also become a cadet which means you will immediately get access to our spinoff show out of time and out of, out of time. We talk about Trek or star Wars or Marvel or whatever it is we're enjoying. We do it context free. We do it just in whatever order and whatever way we want to. And we just enjoy talking about the shows and movies that most excite us. All of that really does help support the show. Thank you so much for listening or watching and we'll see you next time. 